Well, good morning. Again, welcome back to many of you, and uh, welcome to the new church season to all of you. If you uh, missed iClub and iStudy this morning, which happens right before this service, make sure you put in your calendar for, for next week. You won't want to miss those education opportunities. Um, not only is it the start of the new kind of church year today, but we're beginning a new, a new three-week series that we're going to study together, asking the question, does the Bible really say? Because there's a number of of phrases, of, of cliches that we use often that, that have become so familiar to us and seem to be so true that many of us assume that they're Scripture. Many of us assume that these are God's words and that this is what God says. In fact, I was going to, I told you the idea of quizzing you on some of these, but I thought I wouldn't put you on the spot. So instead, I'll just tell you that you will not find the phrase, God helps those who help themselves in this book, even though we often think God said that. God didn't say that. You'd have to be reading Aesop's fables to be able to hear that one, right? And you'd have to be reading Aristotle to hear moderation in all things. And I don't know anybody who reads Aristotle except those who are assigned it for college. So my guess is you haven't read that because you won't read it in here. Spare the rod, spoil the child. Sure sounds like a proverb, right? That's not in Scripture. That's actually a 17th century poem by Samuel Butler who said that. How about this too shall pass? Not Scripture. That's, a, uh, that's an old English poem instead of a Hebrew poem. And the one that I heard all the time growing up from my mom, cleanliness is next to godliness. That has to be Scripture, right? Wrong. Sounds like a proverb. It is a proverb, a Babylonian proverb, not a, uh, not a proverb from the Word of God. So, so all those things that we think is you know, pure gospel truth, well, they aren't actually from God's Word. My, my dad did teach me how to have fun with these. If you want to ever quote those, just say they're from the book of Hezekiah. You know, Hezekiah 2 verse 10 says, because there is no book of Hezekiah, but nobody knows that either. So anyways... So we're going to be looking at some of those and find out what does the Bible really say about these, right? And believing that some of these phrases, you know, can be scripture, can be the word of God, you know, is, is humorous. It can be humorous to, to notice that. But honestly, it could also be hazardous as well. While some of these, you know, do rephrase some of the teachings of scripture, some of them actually stand opposed to what scripture teaches. And when we begin to shape our lives according to the words of Aesop or Samuel Butler or some Babylonian wisdom instead of the wisdom of God, well then we, we end up getting ourselves in trouble. We need to be spiritually discerning enough to know if what we're saying to each other, what we're taking to be gospel truth, is actually God's truth or not. Run into that oftentimes when Maybe you've had this when, when maybe you're facing a really serious difficulty in life. Maybe there's a friend of yours who's in an extreme challenge, struggling in life. And, and, and we share the well-known assurance that God will never give you more than you can handle. Is that true? Well, first of all, let me say thank you. 
Thank you for caring about your friend enough to go and be the comforting, encouraging word and standing beside them in their struggles. Please don't stifle that heart of compassion that God gave you. Come alongside those friends. At the same time, we need to know that that phrase, while sounding biblical, while sounding kind and comforting, it's not found anywhere in this book. And actually, the truth that it conveys when you dig into it doesn't even line up with what this book teaches. As nice as it sounds, it's theologically false. So, so what, what do we say about that? What does the Bible actually say? Well, first of all, the Bible has a very different understanding of the relationship, of God's relationship with sin and evil in our lives and in this world. Okay, the Bible declares that our God is good and holy. Right? And God's perfect goodness and God's perfect holiness means that God and evil can have no part with each other. In fact, the Hebrew word for, for holy, it actually means to cut, to separate. So, so what, what that word is saying, you take, you take evil and you take God and, and he's so holy that he cuts himself away. He cuts it apart from him. They cannot be together like oil and water. They don't mix. God cannot have anything to do with that which is evil or sinful or broken. So the prophet Habakkuk writes this. He says about God, he says, your eyes are too pure to even look at evil. You cannot tolerate wrongdoing. Or the book of Job echoes that description. It says, far be it from God to do evil, the Almighty to do wrong. It is unthinkable that God would do wrong, that the Almighty would pervert justice. Okay? So they're totally separate. So think about when, when you're using this phrase or when you're experiencing your life, what, what if your life were a play? What if it were a drama? Where would you put the characters in that drama? When you say God will never give you more than you can handle. Well, here's where you're placing the character. You're saying, here I am or here's my friend who is experiencing great pain in life. Pain coming because of the brokenness of this world, the brokenness of sin, evil in this world. Cancer is evil, right? 9-11, that 15th anniversary today, that brokenness, that evil that crushed so many lives and crushed so many families. Here I am in the midst of that. And, and here is God dishing it out. Here's God up in heaven saying, okay, I know where your limit is. I know what you can handle. And I'm going to send you all this evil, all this brokenness. I won't give you more than you can handle. I'll come right up to that edge. But I'm going to give it to you. There I am hurting. Here is God giving me the hurt. That's not who our God is. Right? We, we set God with that phrase. We set God in opposition to us as the one who's willing this brokenness on us. That's not who God is. That's not what he does. God is holy. He's totally, remember, he's totally cut apart from evil, from brokenness, from sin. He can't be together with it, with injustice. So he's not going to be the one willingly giving it to us. He's not designing it. All right, so if you read the book of Job, 
Job, whose life was full of pain and suffering. And when Job laid out the players in his drama, the drama of his life, he never placed God up here as the source of his suffering, sending him all this pain. He didn't do that. And he did wrestle honestly with the question of why God removed his hand of protection from Job and why he allowed that suffering. That's a question we wrestle with still today, absolutely. But he never made God the source of his suffering. And as we provide comfort and encouragement to each other, to the people that God placed in our lives, we need to be careful that we maintain God's holiness here. That we recognize his place in the drama of our lives. We need to pay attention to how we arrange him. And if we have him as the source of this brokenness, as the source of evil, then we need to rethink what we're saying. I also think, secondly, that, that most of us would be surprised to learn that the Bible actually teaches us that God does allow us to experience more than we can handle. You know, we as, as Western Christians here, we don't like to hear this at all because it flies in the face of, of first of all, our, our American fierce independence, right? We are taught from a young age in our culture that we should be able to handle anything that comes our way. That's what we're taught to believe, right? We should be strong enough. We should be smart enough. We should be wise enough. We should be good enough on our own that we can tackle whatever, whatever life sends. And so we, we take this phrase, God will never give me more than I can handle. We wrap it up in Philippians 4.13, which says I can do everything through God who gives me strength. It, totally ignoring the context of that verse. Read that verse in context sometimes. It's saying very different than what you... Something very different from what you think. But we take, God will never give us more than we can handle. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And, and we declare, I'm strong enough. I should be able to handle it. Whatever comes my way in life, it will never be too much for me. I can do it. This American sense of strength and independence, it actually flies in the face of the truth that God gives us in his word. Now, take out your Bibles. Turn with me to, to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. It's not the passage listed in your, in your bulletin. We're going to get to that one in a few minutes, so keep your Bibles open. But start with 2 Corinthians chapter 1. It's found on page 1119, 1119. Here in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul teaches us something very, very different from that phrase. Because if you know anything about Paul's life, you know that he certainly was not exempt from suffering. His life was filled with pain. His life was filled with suffering. He, he gives us in another, another letter he writes a picture of all that he suffered. He said, he said, besides all the normal dangers that come along with being hated by everybody in your country in, in a pretty lawless place... Besides those dangers, he says, I've been whipped five times, and that's 39 lashes. So you can do 39 times five and find out how many times he was lashed. Right? He was beaten with rods three times. He was stoned once so badly that they left him for dead. He was shipwrecked three times, including one time when he spent the whole night and the whole next day out on the open sea before he was rescued. It, now listen 
in the midst of all that suffering, listen to what he says about suffering, starting in verse 8 of 2 Corinthians chapter 1. He says, We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about the hardships we suffered in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, in our hearts we felt the sentence of death. But this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He has delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will continue to deliver us as you help us by your prayers. Then many will give thanks on our behalf for the gracious favor granted us in answer to the prayers of many. Now did you catch what he said at the end of verse 8? He said, we were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired even of life. It was more than he could handle. Right? So we say God won't give you more than he can handle. Well, he gave Paul more than he could handle. It was beyond his ability. It was far beyond him. So far that he despaired of life itself. He just wanted it all to end. You know, so in Paul's life, the suffering's coming, the difficulties, the struggles, the pain. And once it got to the point where Paul could handle it, God's hand didn't come down and say, okay, that's enough. I'm not going to give him more than he can handle. No, God's hand didn't come and stop. And he pushed way beyond that point. There was no hope, dream, a thought of Paul being able to handle this. He was desperate. And that's exactly the point he's making. That's exactly the point God is making. See, Paul goes on to tell us that God, why God allowed him to experience such a huge amount of pain. He says God allowed it precisely because the doorway for us to access the grace of God that we so desperately need is opened by our need. It's only when we finally recognize that we can't handle life on our own. It's only when we finally recognize that we are not strong enough on our own that we will finally turn to God. That we'll finally trust completely in him and find true strength that can handle whatever comes our way. Paul tells us why he suffers so greatly. He gives, he gives two reasons in this paragraph that we just read. He says, first of all, in verse 9, he says, this happens that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. The truth is we desperately need God to make it through life. If we think we are strong enough on our own, if we think that, that, that we will never have more than we can handle, if we think that I can do all things, then why do we need God? We don't. We'll not, we won't turn to him. So Paul learned how desperately he was in need and how much he needed God. When Paul boasts, he says this later on, he says, when I boast, I don't boast about myself. I'm not that cool. I'm not that strong. It's God. I'm going to boast about God because I know how weak I am and I know how strong he is. As followers of Jesus Christ, we stand in opposition to the message that our culture gives us, 
this message of fierce independence and self-sufficiency. And we humbly confess that we're not strong enough to handle life on our own. We desperately need God. You need God. I need God desperately. And the challenges and struggles of life aren't about us proving that we've got it. It's about us being reminded again and again that we're completely hopeless and helpless on our own and we depend on him completely. It isn't me who can do all things, it's God who can do all things. Right, Ephesians 3. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever, amen. We are given more than we can handle so that our hearts will turn to God who can handle anything. So first of all, along with Paul, we learn that we need God. Secondly, along with Paul, we learn that we need each other. Right? Paul's helplessness led him to depend on his fellow believers. In, in verse 11, I don't know if you caught that in verse 11, both early on and at the very end. He, he acknowledges the support and encouragement that he received from these Corinthian believers through their prayers as they prayed for him in his suffering. They've been a source of God's grace for him. Paul credits their prayers as the avenue by which God's gracious favor was released into his life and gave him strength. Now, humbling ourselves enough to each other is a difficult and humiliating, a humbling spiritual lesson that all of us need to learn. Because it's hard to ask for help, isn't it? It's hard to ask for prayers from people. Our culture celebrates those who are self-sufficient. You can do this on your own. But the sooner we learn that we desperately need God, and the sooner we learn that we desperately need each other, we need the community, the better it is. Because God has chosen so often to work. He does miracles. Sometimes God intervenes directly in our lives. But most often, God has chosen to work through his people, through the church, and so the grace of God to carry us through our brokenness, the grace of God and the strength of God to carry us through the pains in our life come from the community around us. Right? The grace of God is shown through the prayers offered for you, through the cards sent to you, through the meals delivered to you, through the acts of love and kindness. God's presence often shows up through that person who sits in the waiting room with you or who sits at your kitchen table with you, crying with you and praying with you. That is the presence of God, the grace of God coming to carry you through the power of God in your life. And when we deny each other the opportunity to be that kind of community for each other, then we're denying God the opportunity to pour his grace into our lives. And so, so later, later in his letter, in this letter, Paul tell, talks about how he suffers from a thorn in the flesh. 
And we don't know what that thorn in his flesh was, but we do know that it was suffering enough that it brought Paul to his knees and he begs God to please take this pain away, take this suffering away. And God's answer to him was this. His answer was, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And Paul goes on to then say, then I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. When Paul is weak, that is when he is strong because he's depending on God and God's power. When he is weak, then he is strong. Because then the flow of God's grace and strength isn't blocked by self-sufficient pride that says, I don't need God. I can do this on my own. When we are weak, then we are strong. Know that this life will give you more than you can handle if it hasn't already done so. And I know for many of you it has. Within this community, we need to honestly admit that. Because then, instead of trying to take that lonely journey of trying to make it all by yourself, then instead we can face these challenges of life with the strength of God behind us and the company of each other around us. So if the Bible doesn't say, God will never give you more than you can handle, where did that phrase come from? What, what should it say? Well, that phrase probably came from either mis misreading or, or misinterpreting Paul's first letter to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Uh, so flip back a few pages to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. At, at the beginning of this chapter, we're not going to read the beginning of this chapter, but it's a history lesson. Paul takes his readers back to, to the people of Israel being led out of Egypt and being cared for directly by God himself. And his point in doing that is to show how this community was so close to God. If ever any people were in the very presence of God and knew him well and saw him daily. It was these people who, who had God's presence leading them with a pillar of fire by night and a cloud by day. They had God's presence providing them with food every morning as manna lay on the ground. They had God's presence providing them with, with water out of a rock when when they were thirsty. They saw and heard God's presence around Mount Sinai with the thunder and the lightning. So if anybody was close to God, this community was. And yet his story, in his story he tells here, he says these people who are so close to God still were tempted and they still fell away. They fell to temptation to worship other gods. They fell to the temptation to sexual deviancy. They fell to the temptation of putting God to the test. They fell to the temptation of grumbling and complaining. Those are the ones that he lists here in this story. They were tempted and they chose to follow a path that led them away from God. 
Now Paul says to these New Testament believers in Corinth and to us, starting in verse 11, this is what he says after that history lesson. He said, these things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the fulfillment of the ages has come. So if you think that you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. Did you catch that? There's the promise. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear, but he will always provide a way out. That's the true promise of God. Those are the words you find in this book. And it's not, about, it's not about making it through tough times. It's not about having the strength to gut it out. And This is all about our sanctification. This is all about our holiness. This is about us saying no to sin, just like God says no to sin. When we, Paul is saying when we're tempted by sin, when we're tempted to walk away from God and his plans, we're, when we're enticed by the things of this world instead of the things of God, God will always give, give you the option of saying no. There will always be another alternative. God will always hold you close to his side as he promises in the covenant of baptism, right? So if you choose to stay there, he'll hold you. If you choose to walk away, he won't stop you, but he'll always give you the option. Sin will never have total control over you unless you let it. And isn't it often true that it's during the, the easiest times of our lives that we most often need to cling to this promise? Because that's kind of Paul's point here in the first half of the chapter. It's when the people of Israel needed it most, when they were closest to God. When they had God in their very presence, they still fell away. So it's in the difficult times, we just got done talking about it, it's in the difficult times of life that we realize how much we need God. And it's in the good times of life that we're tempted to forget about God, to ignore God, to walk away from God. And Paul's saying to us, we don't need, you don't need to follow the pattern that the Israelites set. God will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. With God's help, we can always say no. We can say no to worshiping other idols, right? To worshiping the materialism and, and the, the wealth and the comfort that our culture tells us to worship. We can say no to the sexual immorality and we can choose purity in our, our eyes, our hearts, our minds. We can say no to testing God and learn to trust him instead. We can say no to the temptation to grumble and to complain and instead to learn how to be content and satisfied and then be generous. With God's help, we can always say no to whatever that temptation is. And we can stay standing right in the presence of God in his strength. There's always a way out. That's God's promise. So this morning we're sharing the sacrament of, of communion here. And we're going to have to come. If you're going to come to this table this morning, you have to come in humility. 
That's the only option for you. That's the only way you can honestly come to the sacrament. We need to come humbly because we know that we are not strong enough on our own and we are not good enough on our own. We need God's strength. We need God's strength to make it through the challenges of this life. So some of us I know, some of us here in this room are coming to this table and we're, we're coming because we're in the middle of some significant struggles in life. Your life hurts. There's pain. There's struggle. And maybe you've tried and tried to make it on your own. Right? To stand in our own strength. To be tough enough and strong enough. Maybe this morning you're finally ready to say, I give up. This is too much for me to handle. And when you eat the bread and when you drink the juice, it's your declaration to God saying, I give up, God. And as you taste that bread, as you taste that juice, that's God's declaration to you to say, I'll give you the grace. I'll give you the strength. I'll walk with you right through whatever challenge it is that you're facing. For some of us, we need to be ready to admit that we can't handle it. We need God. We need this community. And we also need the strength to make it through the temptations that threaten to pull us away from God. Some of us come to this table and, and we honestly know the sins that we're hiding from everybody else, right? We think, we think we're secret with our sins. We're secret, especially with that that temptation that we fall to consistently, that we choose consistently, instead of saying no, we continually say yes because we really kind of like it. Well, we need to humble ourselves to come to this table to say, God, forgive me. Forgive me for wanting to say yes and saying yes so often, and now I give up. Help me to say no. Give me your strength to set this sin apart. Because remember, God and sin can't, can't be together. They don't mix. They don't mix in my life either. They don't mix in your life. And so you come humbly saying, I give up. I need you, God. Come to this table this morning in humility with the words of Paul echoing for your own life. When I am weak, that's when I'm really strong. Would you pray with me before we come to this table together? Father, thank you for the invitation to come to the table. Forgive us for the pride that makes us think we don't need you. Forgive us for our sense of self-sufficiency that thinks we can make it through life on our own. And I'll keep God in my back pocket for emergencies. Remind us how desperately we need you. We can't handle this. We can't do it. We will fall and we will fail every single time without you. So give us that true humility, Father, to come confessing that we need you and that we need your community. And Father, give us a true humility that's willing to lay aside our sins. To take you up on your true promise. To give us the courage 
and the ability to say no and to choose some other option other than sin. Father, some of us feel like sin has got us trapped, that there is no way out, that it's impossible to say no. We're in too deep. The pattern is too ingrained. It's not true. Humble us before your promise that you will always give us a way out, that you will always be present with us, holding us to your side, giving us the courage and ability to say no. And so if we're ready, Father, to set that sin aside, then bring us humbly to this table. And let it be our commitment, Father, to both receive your forgiveness and your grace and to be sanctified by you so that we might choose holiness over sin. Thank you for the invitation, Jesus. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. I'd like to invite the worship team to come forward and the elders who are going to help me serve. Would you come forward, please, as well?